Section 11 of Baled Hay by Bill Nye. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Genius and Whiskey. I see in a recent issue of The Sun a short article clipped from a Sydney paper relative to William Henry Harrison, which brings to my mind fresh recollections of the long ago. I knew William, too. I knew him for a small amount, which I wish I had now, to give to suffering Ireland. He came upon me in the prime of summertime and said he was a newspaper man. That always gets me. When a man says to me that he is a newspaper man and proves it by showing the usual discouraging state of resources and liabilities, I always come forward with the collateral. William wanted to go into the mountains and recover his exhausted nerve force and build up his brain power with our dry, bracing air. He knew Mr. Foley, who was then working a claim in last chance. So he went out there to tone up his exhausted energies. He went out there, and after a few weeks a note came in from the man with the historical cognomen, asking me to send him a gallon of best old crow. I went to my guidebook and encyclopedia and ascertained that this was a kind of drink. I then purchased the amount and sent it on. Mr. Foley said that William stayed by the jug till it was dry, and then he came into town. I met him on the street and asked him how his intellect seemed after his picnic in the mountains. He said she was all right now, and he felt just as though he could do the entire staff work on the New York Herald for two weeks and not sweat a hair. But he didn't pay for the old crow. It slipped his mind. When time hung heavy on my hands, I used to write William a note and cheerfully dun him for the amount. I would also ask him how his intellect seemed by this time, and also make other little jocular remarks. But he has never forwarded me the amount. If the bill had been for pantaloons or grub or other luxuries, I might have excused him. But when I loan a man money for a staple like whiskey, I don't think it's asking too much to hope that, in the flight of time, it would be paid back. However, I can't help it now. It's about time that another bogus journalist should put in an appearance. I have a few dollars ahead, and I am yearning to lay out the sum on struggling genius. THE TWO-HEADED GIRL The cultivated two-headed girl has visited the West. It is very rare that a town the size of Laramie experiences the rare treat of witnessing anything so enjoyable. In addition to the mental feast which such a thing affords, one goes away feeling better, feeling that life has more in it to live for, and is not after all such a veil of tears as he had at times believed it. Through the trials and disappointments of this earthly pilgrimage, the soul is at times cast down and discouraged. Man struggles against ill fortune and unlooked-for woes year after year, until he becomes misanthropical and soured. But when a two-headed girl comes along and he sees her, it cheers him up. She speaks to his better nature in two different languages at one and the same time, and at one price. When I went to the show I felt gloomy and apprehensive. The eighteenth ballot had been taken, and the bulletin seemed to have a tiresome sameness. The future of the Republic was not encouraging. I felt as though, 
If I could get first cost for the blasted thing, I would sell it. I had also been breaking in a pair of new boots that day, and spectators had been betting wildly on the boots while I had no backers at three o'clock in the afternoon, and had nearly decided to withdraw on the last ballot. I went to the entertainment feeling as though I should criticize it severely. The two-headed girl is not beautiful. Neither one of her, in fact, is handsome. There is quite a similarity between the two, probably because they have been in each other's society a great deal and have adopted the same ways. She is an Ethiopian by descent and natural choice, being about the same complexion as Frank Miller's oil blacking, price ten cents. She was at one time a poor slave, but by her winning ways and genuine integrity and genius she has won her way to the hearts of the American people. She has thoroughly demonstrated the fact that two heads are better than one. A good-sized audience welcomed this popular favorite. When she came forward to the footlights and made her two-ply bow, she was greeted by round after round of applause from the elite of the city. I felt pleased and gratified. The fact that a recent course of scientific lectures here was attended by from fifteen to thirty people, and the present brilliant success of the two-headed girl proved to me, beyond a doubt, that we live in an age of thought and philosophical progress. Science may be all right in its place, but does it make the world better? Does it make a permanent improvement on the minds and thoughts of the listener? Do we go away from such a lecture feeling that we have made a grand stride toward a glad emancipation from the mental thraldom of ignorance and superstition? Do people want to be assailed year after year with a nebular theory and the Professor Huxley theory of natural selection and things of that nature? No. One thousand times no. They need to be led on quietly by an appeal to their better natures. They need to witness a first-class bureau of monstrosities, such as men with heads as big as a bandwagon, women with two heads, Cardiff giants, men with limbs bristling out all over them like the velvety bloom on a prickly pear. When I get a little leisure and can attend to it, I'm going to organize a grand constellation of living wonders of this kind and make thirteen or fourteen hundred farewell tours with it, not so much to make money, but to meet a long-felt want of the American people for something which will give a higher mental tone to the tastes of those who never lag in their tireless march toward perfection. THE CULTIVATION OF GUM an idea has occurred to us that, situated as we are at a considerable elevation, and being comparatively out of the line of tropical growth, we should try to propagate plants that will withstand the severe winter and the sudden and sometimes fatal surprise of spring. Plants in this locality worry along very well through the winter in a kind of semi-unconscious state, but when spring drops down on them, about the 4th of July, they are not prepared for it and they yield to the severe nervous shock and pass with a gentle gliding motion up the flume. This has suggested to our mind the practicability of cultivating the chewing-gum plant. We advance this thought with some timidity, 
knowing that our enemies will use all these novel and untried ideas against us in a presidential campaign. But the good of the country is what we are after, and we do not want to be misunderstood. Chewing gum is rapidly advancing in price, and the demand is far beyond the supply. The call for gum is coextensive with the onward move of education. They may be said to go hand in hand. Wherever institutions of learning are found, there you will see the tall, graceful form of the chewing gum tree rising toward heaven with its branches extending toward all humanity. Here in Wyoming, we could easily propagate this plant. It is hardy and don't seem to care whether winter lingers in the lap of spring or not. We have the figures also to substantiate this article. We will figure on the basis of twenty boxes of gum to the plant. And this is a very low estimate indeed. Then the plants may easily be three feet apart. This would be three million ninety-seven thousand six hundred plants to the acre, or sixty-one million nine hundred fifty-two thousand boxes containing one hundred chews in each box or six billion a hundred ninety-five million two hundred thousand chews to the acre. We have a million acres that could be used in this way, which would yield in a good year six quadrillion a hundred ninety-five trillion two hundred billion chews at one cent each. The reader will see at a glance that this is no wild romantic notion on our part, but a terrible reality. Wyoming could easily supply the present demand and wag the jaws of nations yet unborn. It makes us tired to think of it. Of course, anything like this will meet with strong opposition on the part of those who have no faith in enterprises, but let a joint stock company be formed with sufficient capital to purchase the tools and gum seed, and we will be responsible for the result. Very likely the ordinary spruce gum, made of lard and resin, would be best as an experiment, after which the prize package gum plant could be tried. These experiments could be followed up with a trial of the gum drop, gum overshoe, gum arabic, and other varieties of gum. Dr. Hayford would be a good man to take hold of this. Colonel Donnellan says, however, that he don't think it is practical. No use of enlarging on this subject. It will never be tried. Probably the town is full of people who are willing to chew the gum, but wouldn't raise a hand towards starting a gum orchard. We are sick and tired of pointing out different avenues to wealth, only to be laughed at and ridiculed. We have reasoned it out. A home magazine comes to us this week in which we find the following, connected with a society article. After alluding to the young men of the nineteenth century and their peculiarities, it continues, In fact, many of the more fashionable strains are all black, except the distinctive white feet and snout, so noticeable at this epoch in our history. This, it would seem, will make a radical change in the prevailing young man. With white feet and white snout, the masher must also be black aside from those features. This will add the charm of extreme novelty to our social gatherings, and furnish sufficient excuse for a man like us, with blonde brined and strawberry blonde feet, staying at home with the ban of society and the loose smoking jacket on him. Farther on, this peculiar essay says, 
He is noted for his wonderfully fine blood. The bone is fine, the hair thin, the carcass long but broad, straight and deep-sided, with smooth skin, susceptible to no mange or other skin diseases. We almost busted our capacity trying to figure out this startler in the fashion line, and wore ourselves down to a mere geometrical line in our endeavor to fathom this thing when, yesterday, in reading an article on the same paper entitled The Berkshire Hog, we discovered that the sentences above referred to had evidently been omitted by the foreman, and put in the society article. It is unnecessary to state that a blessed calm has settled down in the heart of this end of the boomerang. Time at last makes all things size up in proper shape. Blessed be the time which matures the human mind. And the promissory note. Carving Schools They are agitating the matter of instituting carving schools in the East, so that the rising generation will be able to pass down through the corridors of time without its lap full of dressing and its bosom laden with gravy and remorse. The students at this school will wear barbed wire masks while practicing. These masks will be similar to those worn by German students, who slice each other up while obtaining an education. End of section 11